yes. Welcome back to the latest and greatest episode of The Future of Football. It is the podcast from Versus that brings you closer to the people, the stories and the ideas that are shaping the future of the game we love. My name is Corey and I am joined once again on this latest escapade by the one and only Mayawa. How are you keeping, sir? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm decent, man. I can't help but feel like my introduction needs to be even more esteemed for you, given <laughs> the news we had last month about your certain sports journalist association nomination coming to the forefront. No, I think the I think the intro does me me enough justice. It's not about me, it's about the content. So selfless <laughs> <laughs> attitude. Love that, love that. Um yeah, today's episode. I suppose, I mean, to be fair, before we go into today's one, I mean, the last one we did now was yeah, last month with uh, big man Jordan Henderson. I've got a slight sense of guilt that I feel like our conversation, for whatever reason, has um, jinxed Liverpool's form from that point onwards. <laughs> but on the whole, good episode, right? Yeah, really good episode. And it, it's just a shame that they they found themselves um, in the moment that they're in. But I think it just kind of brings you back to the whole thing that these guys are normal human beings as well. Like they've got stuff going on and everything that he kind of touches on about, you know, family and people being around you is probably what they're leaning into so much now about being one big family and how they can sort of impact themselves. So, um, yeah, but the episode was really well received. Some really major topics Jordan spoke on as well. And this episode is another episode where we're going to some really big themes and really get some insight into things many people may not have had conversations on before. Yeah, I think what's amazing is the first episode was obviously very much looking at how the media can improve itself going forward. Um, the second with Jordan Henderson, as we've alluded to, was very much built around the idea of how players can change their conduct moving forward and make the world a better place. And this time out, we're kind of looking again at a different sector and looking at football clubs. And how they themselves can operate in a world that is increasingly passionate about equality, about inclusivity, about making a difference in the issues that really count in 2021 and beyond. Um, and to have that conversation, we're linking up with Maggie Murphy, who is the um, general manager of Lewis FC, which is an amazing organization, right? I mean, I'm actually fairly, I suppose, privileged in the sense that I don't live very far from the club. So I've kind of known for a while about a lot of the work they do based around the equal treatment of the women's and men's teams. But what was so sick to me was when researching this conversation was seeing how impactful and innovative their work is in other areas. Um, looking at things like academies, um, fan ownership, equality across the game, as we've seen. And I think they're really shaping a lot of the discussion around how football clubs should be run in this current climate. Yeah, for me, it's just a... Uh ambition of the club it's a club that's been in the same location from its um from its beginning but has massive dreams of being the world's most owned football club and it's well on its way there with everything that it's doing and that sense of culture that they have makes them stand out they do things differently they they are setting the trend and objective of what needs to be achieved in football and they want football to be real and you just look at it and you look at what some of big people in football say like I've seen commentators talk about the club and say there's not many places that feel like it and it, it's credit to what is a local club and really in touch with their community and what they're doing so this is this is how football should be and this is how football will be I guess and that's why we're discussing in the future of football podcast 100% let's roll right into it we are chatting to Maggie Murphy from Lewis FC about all things equal pay about all things equal treatment about all things gender equality about all things that football clubs can do to make the world a better place and how football clubs should be running in 2021 and beyond. Um, yeah, hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. Now, Maggie, in our opinion, Lewis FC is without any shadow of a doubt one of the most innovative and progressive clubs in the game that really exists at any level in any country in the world right now. For you yourself, how has the last year been, both personally, professionally, and how has yeah, COVID taken a toll on the, on the work you've done in the last year? Because it's not been easy for anyone, right? No, not at all. It's, um, I think it's actually really characterised by lots of ups and downs. I'm quite a positive person, so I do try and find silver linings. And um, 
in some ways I'm happier thinking about and talking about the silver linings rather than some of the struggles that, that we've gone through. I think the struggles are well documented. You know, clubs like ours have taken a huge financial hit. Um, it's been tough not having the fans back or having the fans in for one game and then the next week they're not allowed back in. And that that that's just a bit of a struggle. Um, you know, delays to funding support and, and all the rest of it. Uh, but when you think about the silver linings, you know, a couple of things really spring to mind. One is that, you know, we've had to up our game and things like um, live streaming our games. Uh, we've brought in a commentator and a co-commentator. Often, you know, at the moment, it's only the women's team that is uh, playing. So we've brought in commentators and co-commentators, including some of the players on the men's team. They've been able to kind of stay engaged with the club and do their commentary. And um, and we had a game the other day uh and I just kind of looked through the stats afterwards and I realised that people from 27 countries watched our game and the game was against Durham. Again, neither of us are big names. You know, we're in the same league as the likes of Leicester and uh, Liverpool and Crystal Palace. But it was this game, you know, Lewis v Durham, where we had people from 27 countries. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. And maybe we wouldn't have paid so much attention to getting those numbers or improving the broadcast. Um if we hadn't had the pandemic. So yeah, I'm looking for silver linings, but I think there's there's things out there that are quite, you know, I used to look out at the mascots, the little kids walking the players out on match day and just think, oh, that's, I love that, I love that. I would always take a moment. I might be super stressed, but I'll always take a moment to watch the mascots. And now this time it's like, I'll take a look at the viewing figures and go, yeah, 27 countries, I'll take that, I'll take that. No, it's amazing. I think to be fair, like the, the, the amazing reach you guys have is just a tantamount you know, respect for the way that you've carried your work in the last few years. And we speak to you as, you know, International Women's Day arrives in 2021. And for anyone who isn't already aware, but they should be, Lewis FC made history in 2017, a few years ago, when you announced you'd be the first. And today, I believe the only semi-pro and professional club that pays women and men equal equal salary for their, for their efforts on the pitch, which is amazing. Um, now, I'm actually from Eastbourne, so I'm only 10, 15 minutes away from Lewis FC. So I've been aware of that story for a while. But for anyone who isn't fully aware of the journey your club went on to, to reach that point in time, um, take us back a bit and talk us through, yeah, how the club came to be in a position where you thought, you know what, the right thing to do at our point in our time is to pay women and men's players the same salary. How, how did that discussion come about? Yeah, OK, well, let's go right back to the beginning. I think so Lewis Football Club was founded in 1885. So it's been around for a very long time. And in fact, the pitch that we use today is still the same pitch that was used back then. So it's it's kind of ancient. And that's, I, I don't even understand the story around how it got its name, the dripping pan. There's like plenty of little, uh, I don't know, theories around it. I think it's all a little bit local, so I'm not going to get involved because I'm not local myself. <laughs> Stay out of that, that situation. Um, but then, and it was a very normal, regular football club, non-league, community club. Um, and honestly speaking, when it got to the financial crisis in 2008, um, you know, it had very classic ownership structure with a couple of people that were putting in a lot of money and through no fault of their own, they were hit really badly by the financial crisis. Um, so the, cl the club was really close to going bust. And that was kind of the name of the game. And it still is the name of the game with lots of football clubs that are small and community owned or community kind of, you know, small club, um, it, you know, not the, the big brands. So it was around that time that a bunch of people from Lewis came together and said, you know what, we need to, this club is too important. It's, um, and they decided to take it into community ownership. So originally it was just a small group, like six or seven of them. And then it was 10 and then they expanded a little bit more. And I think, you know, it went up to a hundred people that kind of chipped in money to keep the club afloat. And then they decided to open up to anyone. So it's now uh, owned by 1600 people around the world, 34 different countries. Um, and the whole premise was, you know, it's a football club and football clubs are community assets. They're not a profit making machine. And it, whatever we do is going to be in the best interests of the, the players, the community, the people that make up the clubs. So I think that was really foundational. That's what's really important. And, and, and our principles and our values are probably the reason why we do have all those owners and, and why 27 you know, people from 27 different countries were watching us is because they like our principles and our values and the community ownership stuff. But fast forward then to 2017. Um, and that's when a group, a small group of directors uh, decided to stand for election because that's how, how the governance structure works. 
they stood on a platform and said that they would, uh, if they were elected, then they would bring in equal treatment for the male and female players. So it's pretty radical. There was an election, they came in. Um, and I think that's that allowed them the mandate to, to make that big shift. And it wasn't easy. It, there was lots and lots of pushback. Um, but I think there's a couple of really, really key things in there. One, it wasn't just about equal pay. So people talk about it a lot as though it's just like, okay, so here's a playing budget and we split it equally between the men and the women. Yes, we do that. So yes, there is that kind of element of equal pay. But actually it's a it's something a bit more fundamental and it is something that other clubs could do even if they're not thinking about the pay side. And that's the equal value and equal treatment. So, you know, both teams play at the same grounds. We use the same facilities, the same training grounds. And like when we make decisions around training slots or whatever it might be, the kit, you know, there is not one team that is by default more powerful than the other there is no kind of special interests or anything like that um and then another one linked to that was like around marketing the decision was taken that we were just going to market the women's games and so in just a couple of seasons the attendance had quadrupled and that was just simply because rather than just putting up posters in the town advertising the men's games we were putting up posters for the women's games as well so people were like oh right okay there's a women's a women's team here let's you know and we had to value it so we had to up the ticket prices as well I think in women's football we still tend to be a bit embarrassed so we allow people in for two or three pounds and we were saying so we had to stay true to ourselves by saying okay well we're going to market it but then we also have to up the prices because we believe in the product and we believe you'll come so in just a couple of years yeah the attendance is quadrupled and that was even though ticket prices went up by 160%. Today, today the attendances are uh, like roughly equal. They're, they're basically about 560, 580 on both sides. And the ticket prices are both the same now as well. So we've just kind of, over time, everything has equalised. Yeah, it's something I've personally been aware about for a while. I've, I've, I've got friends who actually do work with Lewis and I've had colleagues that actually travel from far and wide to see the games and they always talk about both experiences being equal. I know you mentioned the marketers spend is the same, training slots the same. With what you've mentioned though about how, for instance, the male games have been curtailed for, for the moment, um, female girls are still happening. Do you reckon that it's still possible to have this system as the club continues to grow? I think it's it's something that is a challenge and a lot of people ask us um, whether it's funny because now people ask us whether it's fair that our women only get equal equal pay and shouldn't they get paid more. Um, and I just I just love that debate because finally we're seeing that when you invest in something, it grows. And I think we're, we're quite hesitant about investing in a in a in a in a female led product. Do you know what I mean? Like there's this wonderful story about I think it's like diet coke diet coke cost the coca-cola company loads for the first few years because they had to invest in it and now it outstrips normal coke by loads and i think that's just like one of those stories where everyone kind of expects women's football to be successful before it deserves equal fa cup prize money or before it deserves investment before uh, you know it's almost like well when you've got the fans <laughs> then we'll give you an extra budget for X or Y. And I'm like, well, where do they, those fans don't just magically come if they don't know about it, if they don't know it's happening. So there's a chicken and egg thing in there. Um, we're, we're staying true to the principles. We are really uh, keen to show that this club can be one club. And I say that with a bit of a smile on my face because I know that the hashtag one club is, is out there and prominent and everyone likes to think that you know they're all one club but you know we're just trying to see if this is if this works um and we're committed to carrying on uh doing everything we can to share the resources equally um knowing that the more that people understand what we're trying to do you know there's going to be a really positive impact for the men and the women um and i think <laughs> one last thing on this because it's, it's really fresh and it's a really good question um I think that sometimes a few years ago, people around the club, like fans, were concerned that the women were getting an unfair share of resources that they hadn't created. And now those same people are really worried that the men won't get their fair share 
of the resources now that the women are bringing in big sponsors like Lyle and Scott that we saw in at Christmas time. So it's, yeah, I think it's like a, one of those interesting things where we want to say, no, 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 really, this is a club and any resources coming in, it's going to be split equally. And we hope that everyone rises as a result. What I love about it is, and we've mentioned, we, we see Lewis as a really innovative club. It's not just about the pay, it's equality across the field. Do you, and I know you've mentioned before that it's, it's some, you're not as big as the other clubs, but do you think this can ever be standard practice for other clubs? And if so, what do you think needs to be done? I think that it, it's, um, it's, honestly, I think it's going to be really difficult for the bigger clubs to be able to do this um, because it's hard and it has involved quite a lot of sacrifice. Um, we're principled on a whole bunch of things, not just the equality stance, but on the fact that, you know, for example, we don't take gambling money at the club, uh, even when it's been offered to us and it would have been one of the biggest amounts of sponsorship funding the club had ever received. We, we declined. Um, but when you've got those kind of strong principles and values and it, they're kind of enshrined, it's easier to say no to money. Whereas I think that other clubs that are motivated by profit will just take the cash. And so with that in mind, unless they're genuinely wanting equality and unless they genuinely back the idea that their women's team could be as successful as their men's team, it's not something you can just mess around with at the edges. So I think. Um, it's, I think that because we are often kind of held up as this example on the equality side and we're very positive about it, I think people sometimes think that it was easy, but it's not. And I, we, I don't think we ever want to pretend that it was easy. Um, and I'm not quite sure that others are committed to it. I think lots of the other big clubs are very committed to incrementally increasing their investment into their women's side. Um, but that's not that painful to do. If you've got many, many, many millions of pounds of revenue then adding half a million to your women's team is like okay that's the least you can do really isn't it yeah and it's um it's going to be interesting to see how that changes in the next few years how clubs change their approach I know recently there's been a lot of pressure from fans supporters of the game saying that more needs to be done but back to something you mentioned, which stands stands out so much to me. You mentioned the FA Cup, and I think it was last year, ahead of that game of Arsenal, yeah. you put out a thread of tweets, and I found it really interesting. I, I still go to look at it sometimes, and I'm kind of shocked by the numbers. But the tweets were about the disparity between the prize money between male and female iterations of the tournament. And th- some of those numbers were, were crazy, especially as you can progress through the tournament. The, the gaps became bigger and male teams were being rewarded far more for doing less. Many were shocked when they saw those statistics and the figures. You had some people kind of saying this needs to be put to end, but there was this opposition that was solely focused on it's down to the gate numbers. It's down to the gate numbers. Why do you think it's so hard to make people understand that the disparity that um, exists between both sides of the game is more than this sort of ideology about fig- gate figures? Oh, that's like a massive existential question, isn't it? <laughs> I think um, I think some people don't want to accept it. So they just don't want to get it. So whatever it is, it, it will be, uh, what about this or what about that? That My thread that I put out was, was long. I think there was like, I don't normally do this. There was probably like 10 tweets and it was like, oh, okay, let's take the argument that, um, well, there's more men's teams than there are women's teams. Okay, fine, let's do that. So I dealt with that one. Uh, It still came out that our prize pot should have been increased from uh, the 250,000 pounds that it is now to 9 million. Fine, I'll take that, you know. Um, And then it was, well, what about, um, you know, I can't even remember what about, because even the increases, it wasn't just that it was already a huge gap to start with. It was that the women's prize money was being increased by 10% each round, but the men's was like doubling or quadrupling. And it was like, even the, you can't even justify the the increases, let alone the actual figures. So some people just don't want to get it. And I think those people, um, they stick in your mind, obviously, but I think that 
you kind of almost have to empty your mind of them because they just don't want to get it. And then there's a group in the middle that are really genuinely trying to get it. And they genuinely just think that football is about that revenue piece. So I, I don't think they quite, un they, they don't seem to be able to understand my perspective, which is you need to invest in order to create a revenue generating model. So if you don't invest, like, yeah, you know, for those that are listening that haven't read the thread, we were playing Arsenal. Um, and if we won that game, we would have won £3,000. So unfortunately, Arsenal won. So Arsenal women won £3,000 that day. But if we were men, we would have won £360,000. £360,000 for me, I can spend that on all kinds of incredible improvements in the ground. £360,000 for Arsenal men, that's, that's, you know, a week's wages for one of their players. It, it's kind of... They don't even need the cash, you know. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I just feel like everyone comes back down to the revenue and everyone comes back down to the gate. And I think that they don't understand that you need to invest in order to be able to grow a gate. And that that kind of has to come first. The other thing that I don't think people understand is that loads and loads of taxpayer money goes into men's football and into the development of boys' football. Um, even if you just think about like the next time you walk past a public park, wherever that is, on a Saturday morning, and the kids are back playing football, right? Almost every child that's playing out on that public park is a is a boy. And if you walk past a school and you look in the in the schoolyard, the the kids that are taking up the space and playing football are boys, and the girls are at the side, not allowed to kind of join in. I know this sounds like really small, but it's my money as a taxpayer that went into that public park or that school, um, or Wembley Stadium. Wembley Stadium had 120 million pounds of taxpayer money. That's that's our cash, right? And in an average year, it hosts about 14 men's sports games and one women's sports game. So every day there is taxpayer funds going into men's football. So it's not like it magically just happened all by itself. Men's football didn't kind of come along with this like golden cloud raining down the cash. <laughs> it's, it's like it's been invested in. Um, so yeah, I don't know, like I, I go up and down in terms of whether I want to and can be bothered to engage with the stuff, but I just wanted to, I wanted to put those numbers out there because I know that everyone thinks that there's a gap in FA Cup prize money. I just don't think they realize how much of a gap there is. No, I think that's really fascinating. I think this, a lot of this stuff stems from like two accusations i guess that we sort of see quite a lot on the media side i think one is the idea of prize money and you know gate receipts and the women's game doesn't generate as much and we hear that line of attack so often less often now thankfully but we have seen that previously and the other thing we see a lot of the time is again less often now than previously but we will cover women's football women's results post nikita paris to our page for example and you know the first comment underneath maybe the first three might be who cares we don't care <laughs> no we don't want to see this i mean we, we've been pretty encouraged to see that that idea of respect towards women's game certainly increasing over the last 12 to 18 months, largely on the back of a successful Women's World Cup in 2019, which is amazing. What I like about the Lewis story is that it certainly seems from the outside, at least, and following it back then, that sense of disrespect never really seemed to come from the supporters when it was announced, for example, that the, the women's club will be getting equal treatment across the board. Did, was that the case as, as you've seen it? And yeah, do you feel as well that the, the culture around the women's game from fans, both male and female, has improved in the last year to two years or so? Yeah, I, it definitely has improved. I think there has been a bit more um, legitimacy around women's football. And I think mm -hmm. that's directly linked to visibility. So um I'm sorry she has to go through it, but someone like Alex Scott being on TV and, and like being very visible, she's she's taken on a lot for women's football in general in terms of the visibility. So she's going through that, but she's breaking barriers for the next generation because they can look on TV and go, okay, well, you know, it's a viable space. And it's not even for little girls watching her, it's for men watching her. And I don't think sometimes men realize that they're gatekeepers and the comments that they make to their daughters about whether they can go and play football or what they're interested in is huge in terms of influence. So the World Cup, I think, was really important because 
it was on free to view TV, it was on the BBC and therefore people could accidentally find themselves watching games. Um, it wasn't like download an app, register for an app, red button, click through here, click through there, like trying to search for an illegal stream or something. It was on the BBC, you walked home, you switched it on and like 45 minutes later, you're engrossed in some random Cameroon via Argentina type game. So I think that was, uh, um, I think that was really important in terms of the legitimacy in creating a, that kind of a space. Um, yeah, so, uh, sorry, someone just come in. Um, so yes, I think that was, I think the legitimacy in that free to view is, is, is really powerful. And that legitimacy also needs now to extend to the people that hold the keys when it comes to sponsorship or other broadcast deals and all that kind of side of things. Speaking of holding the keys, do you reckon enough is being done to promote and help its growth? I know where we are now, when you look from the outside looking in, we've come a long way as it um, pertains to the um, women's game. But do you feel like enough is being done in this present moment to really push and help its growth? I think, like, first of all, lots is being done. And it's really important to acknowledge that. One of the challenges is that so much has to be done that it's it's always going to be difficult. There's always going to be more to, to do. So when Barclays came in with their funding, um, it, when I looked at the things that they were wanting to achieve within a couple of years, I was like, oh, guys, like your investment, you know, it was huge. It was like 10 million pounds or something like that. But what they wanted to do was revolutionize the WSL and open up access to football for girls in primary schools around the country. And I was like, that 10 million pounds is already gone. Like I could spend 10 million pounds tomorrow on girls football in Lewis. Um, so I think sometimes we stretch ourselves a little bit thin. I think one danger that I see is that it, in the rush to create a really beautiful, glossy, broadcast ready product, we're being moved so fast as clubs in the championship and, and in the WSL, we're being moved so fast that we need to invest now, um, hoping for a return in the future. And the only clubs that can do that are the big Premier League back clubs. And I, I do worry that an ironic thing about the progress in women's football is the more successful we are, the more dependent we'll be on men's football. And small clubs like us, we could be extinguished overnight if all the Premier League clubs decided to invest properly in their women's teams. So then what future is there for us? We kind of almost have to capitalise and fight for it now um, and hope not to be extinguished by a Premier League club just switching on the tap. Yeah, I mean, that was actually my next question. I think you've probably taken away that out of my mouth in a way. I think I was going to say that, obviously, the last year or two, we've seen Man United start up a league, well, start up a team, sorry, from scratch, basically. They started in the championship alongside you, right, and were promoted within one season. Of course, your ambition is to reach the WSL and your mid-table currently. But how real is the threat of, you know, suddenly every Premier League team investing heavily into the women's sides, far more than you have the means to do so? Yeah, how much of a double-edged sword is that for you personally, where you see the women's game going through a great period of growth on one side? Mm -hmm. On the other, on a personal level, you'll work with Lewis and what you have ambitions for that club to achieve. I'm guessing that makes it far, far tougher. Yeah, it is difficult. I mean, obviously, as a as a woman that's been involved in football for a very long time, I think it's brilliant these clubs are providing those environments. Okay, first off, it's brilliant. All those clubs should be providing those environments. Um, it's it's tough though to be here building a culture and building an environment to allow our players to thrive, knowing that another club can just. Uh, if, if they want to, they can just switch on. So I have to go out hunting for, for money, for backers, for sponsorship. And my job was be, would be so much easier if all I had to do was convince the board that women's football is worth investing in. Like they're already convinced. They're out hunting for money as well. Yeah. Um, a, a really good example of this is, is Leicester City, who at Christmas last year were kind of bottom of the league or close to the bottom, kind of worried about relegation. And in just a couple of months they went full-time pro and now they're top of the league and might get promoted to the WSL. Mm -hmm. And that, that money is it, kind of like just gone in very, very quickly. Well, you know, we can't do that. We know that. 
So our our game can't just be about money. It has to be around culture. And the one thing that doesn't really make headlines or anything, but which I'm probably most proud of, is the culture we're developing in our team and in our squad. I think we've got the best team chemistry out of all the teams that we play against. Um, our players really get it. Like, they get the project. They get what we're building. They... Um, they kind of roll their sleeves up and work in the trenches together. Um, and I think that that's something really special that you can't, that you can't just kind of buy overnight. So I don't know. I have to, I have to personally hold out that, that culture and finding the, the right partners to come on board with us on this journey is going to be enough to help us get through to the, to the next phase, to the next phase of, um, phase of growth before the, kind of rug gets pulled out from under our feet. But I tell you what, one of the biggest things for us uh, in this last year in the pandemic, and again, talk, coming back to those silver linings, I didn't see any other women's team in, in our league getting the big bold backing that we got when Lyle and Scott came on board. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing about Lyle and Scott coming on board as our biggest ever club sponsor is also the fact that they're like a fashion brand and a culture and fashion brands. It, mm -hmm. It's not kind of a, I don't know, a, a sterile uh, insurance company. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they kind of like what we were doing. They liked our ethos. They really like our community oriented edge, our uniqueness, the quirkiness, everything we've been building without any backing. They were like, yeah, we like that. That's, that's what we want to support. So, I mean, they could have gone to Crystal Palace or Charlton down the road and backed their women's team there, but you kind of get so much more if you, come here there's something else that's special here yeah i mean obviously i said i'm i'm not very far away from you guys at all and i've been through lewis train station more times than i'd care to count in my life right and like i've always remember seeing for example even like 10 years ago like the amazingly styled sort of pop culture inspired match posters that the club mm. produced for so long and even like recently like the kit shoots you guys produce for the new kits every season look like they've been styled and done by a premier league team right not not a non-league or, or a women's championship team and i think that's testament to the to the vision I guess the club has had for so long is to sort of build a uh, kind of a not counterculture but a very sort of proud passionate brand that looks different from any of the clubs that exist in that same level and I think that is why Lyle and Scott have seen value I think with Lewis FC for the story for the visuals for what the club represents and I feel that is something that the club has in abundance mm -hmm. way and above and beyond any other team in your league or the WSL for example as well um, and I think that's kind of partly why we're having this conversation right is the amazing messages the club carries and yeah the work it does off the pitch as well so I think it's amazing that Lyle and Scott have, uh, have seen that yeah. yeah I think I think what we're we're being a bit tongue-in-cheek with a lot of that because again I think that we have a tendency in this country to think of professional football as as the Premier League right mm -hmm. and so lots of people aspire to look like the Premier League um and our kit launch video was brilliant you know it, it's beautiful um uh one of Ajani's creations and it but it was like it had all the glamour and the visuals but it was players walking the dog up the high street <laughs> and it was kind yeah. of like players eating fish and chips out of the local chippy and it was we were just being kind of a little bit tongue-in-cheek so you have you have the great visuals and the music mm -hmm. but when you actually look at it they were having a picnic in the park do you know yeah. it's kind of like I always kind of smile when I see some of the other women's teams kind of have like their gifts or their scoring visuals and stuff like that. And they're kind of, they're doing the whole moody stare down the camera, arms folded, looking kind of aggressive and mean. And I'm like, you don't have to do that. Like, just do something else. Just what is it that you want to do? And I think that what we're trying to play with is like, well, you know, my players, I don't really have any of my players in, in, in my team that would ever do that. I think they'd probably burst out laughing at the, so why can't we do something with that? You know, what's the, what's the thing that we can play with here? We don't have to look like everyone else. And, and also that doesn't need to be aspirational. What we've seen recently is a lot of clubs that have this sort of identity and culture, people really gravitate towards. And it's something you mentioned just before we started recording about making football real again. It's the reason why everyone kind of fell back in love with grassroots football, because it felt real, it was authentic. 
So it's so interesting when you look at the story of Lewis. It was founded by what, six fans, bought one pound each. And then the next mission is to make it the most owned football club in the world. What does that mean? And why do you think that can be so transformative in terms of your story? Yeah, I think that being the um, most owned club in the world, there's two reasons for that. One is obviously financial, like how cool to have all those people backing us in a kind of almost like football's become a subscription basis, you know? Um, but the other reason for that is because we we take a strong stance on issues in and around football and culture and politics. Um, like I said before, we, we don't take gambling money. Um, we campaign for the FA Cup prize money to be split equally. Um, we've got strong positions and, and principles. And the more, more owners we've got, the more that we can say that people back us and that this is the kind of football club that other people want. And, you know, we had a Japan supporters um, association set up last year, like for Lewis FC, what, what are you talking about? Why, why, why is a bunch of people in Japan, why do they care about us? They care about it because whatever it is that we've created here, they don't have there and they've seen it over here and they want to back it. And <clears throat> I guess lots of people, I get asked um, a fair amount, you know, how can we do what, like how, how can we do what you're doing over here? And it's one of the hardest questions to, to answer because I, I don't really know because it takes a lot and it takes a real genuine commitment to do things differently and take some risks and hope you pull through. But that's why the ownership model is, is so important. Um, and and you, I, I became an owner in 2017 and I remember I did it when I saw them taking the, the stance and I remember saying, I'll probably never go there. I'll probably never see a match, but I want that club to know that I back them. And I it literally was like click, 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 and I became an owner. And that's, I think that that journey that I had, I mean, I'm not, I'm not thinking that everyone else will end up becoming the general manager. That definitely wasn't on the cards back then, but that whole kind of, I think that's what people do when they become an owner. It's because they hear it, they see it, and they're like, yeah, I like that. I want them, I want that to be successful. I think one thing you mentioned a few times, and it's something that really strikes a chord with us. I mean, we're one of the, probably the only media brands that has spoken regularly in sort of our coverage and editorial against the presence of gambling sponsors in football. Um, and I think you're probably like, you know, one of the only clubs to really go vocal and really set a fairly hard um, line for yourself that you won't cross with regards to taking, taking money from gambling sponsors. Um, on that decision and on the club's, viewpoint around that issue why do you think it's important on the first hand for clubs to be responsible <coughs> partners they choose to, to buddy up with and secondly how difficult has it been to like block off an entire revenue stream for the club at mm. a time when I guess finances are more sensitive than they ever have been yeah okay so um uh, sorry so on the first question it was kind of why, why is it so important for like clubs to yeah I mean football has a huge impact on culture it's just like it's just immense this country is just like the power of football is massive for good or for bad and we've seen you know the power of football with someone like Marcus Rashford and what he's been able to achieve by by kind of being so involved in football that there's just so much you can change um but football can also create bad culture and toxic culture um inadvertently especially if it's motivated by money as opposed to people um so i think that the reason that taking a stance on those kinds of things is really important is because we've we've got to stand for something and if we're able to there's already now a conversation taking place about get banning gambling companies from shirt fronts um and that just kind of wasn't happening until we put it front and center. And that normalization of gambling, that happened over just 10 years. Like 10 years ago, we didn't have gambling companies on the front of more than 50% of the clubs in the Premier League in the championship in the men's side. And today it is, it's happened so quickly. That normalization has happened so quickly that, you know, 18 year olds, 16 year olds don't know the world otherwise. And we've got more problem child gamblers in this country now than we've ever had before. Um, I just think there's a responsibility here for football because it has that that impact. So I think that's 
that's just the that's just it you know it's like it there's huge power um was it difficult actually once the decision was taken no it's really easy because um it's just it's just fact so if a gundam company comes in it's like oh no thanks sorry um we don't we don't do that the hardest thing is when a league like the men's league has been sponsored by a gambling company and they require us to put a logo in places we've respectfully declined um and we might have a fine for for doing that and then there might be some wranglings around, around that um but i think once you've got your principles in place it's quite easy to decline what, one thing that i've noticed actually that again i'm kind of quite proud of but before i came onto this podcast i sent i got a cold call email from someone that was trying to sell me something a marketing tool or a you know a new app to, how to engage um fans better you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and i looked at it and it was heavily sponsored by a gambling company so their partners were they had their three or four gambling companies so i just replied and said your app looks nice but i just need to let you know that we don't uh we don't partner with gambling companies so your your product is less attractive because of your gambling company partners and it was just like and i said i hope you don't mind the feedback <laughs> um and since we've had this stance i know of two instances where people conferences or events or uh a, a book that's published has declined to take gambling money because of the stance that Lewis FC has taken so they've I had an email from someone saying hey we were offered this money from a from a gambling company to publish this book but would that make you less likely to work with us and I was like yeah and they were like okay we won't take the money and I was like oh cool all right so I don't know that that again shows the power, I guess, of football for change. Just by having those principles, it's not just that it's guiding us, but I think others are also being guided by it. And does the um, does the community ownership model, I suppose, make that so much easier? Well, and yeah, well, not just easier, but I guess, but I suppose it makes even more sense for the club as the owners are fans, as the owners are people of the community, to take decisions off the pitch that are actually in the best interests of those same people as well. Um, I guess not all clubs have that same sort of thought process or ethical construct at the heart of their existence. Yeah, yeah, and I think it goes two ways. Um, because the more that people become owners, the more they tell they the more they validate our positions. Because they'll come in and say, "Hey, I'm now a really proud owner of this football club because it does XXX." Yeah, and that's 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 powerful as well. Um, I think that, I mean, obviously being community owned, there's lots of clubs that are community owned. And I think number one, you're just saying that we're here for the, the community value. We're not here for profit. And I think just even just marking that in the sand is, is, is really important. But it's difficult as well because lots of people have different understandings of community. So every so often there are little bits of friction that might pop up. And that's because, like I said, we've got these owners in 34 countries. Those people can't come to the games. Um, not every week anyway. And so that kind of means that the community that might be here is maybe a little bit different. We have, basically we have multiple communities. We have local Lewis community that comes to games. We probably have quite a wide women's football community. And then we probably have other kind of football for good communities. And they're not all the same and they can overlap. But sometimes when we talk about community, we might need to be a bit more specific that we have communities let's say yeah with everything that we've discussed how important is it for brands or companies like Lyle and Scott to get involved with football establishments that are doing the right thing yeah so I think uh yeah this this comes down to whether a brand is really genuine about investing in uh football for good and social purpose like at the moment, you know, there's lots of stuff in the news at the moment, and there has been over the last year about um, uh, global purpose or social purpose. And, you know, we've seen that with the Black Lives Matter movement last year and brands kind of, I don't know, blacking out their screen or whatever on, on Twitter or Instagram. And I think that what we're looking for is um, which, which, which companies and which brands are genuine in what they're trying to do and which ones are kind of happy to be part of something which is a little bit more wear a t-shirt campaign. Um, I, I think, and that's why with Lyle and Scott, it's been a really genuine relationship. So, you know, they've backed us um, 
And it's a bit of a two-way thing. So obviously they're giving us the financial injection, but they're also helping us tell our story through some content pieces that they're putting out. But also they're asking us for our input and our suggestions on how they can do better as well. So it's an actual partnership, not just a kind of one way, here's some money and then we get to brand your stuff, that, that kind of thing. But there's loads, I mean, of all the brands out there, they've got a choice to make. They've Their choice is like, do you invest in something which is, and I hate saying it because it sounds cliched at the moment, but do you invest in something which is authentic um, or are you just going to throw in some stuff so that people can uh, tweet about something for a weekend? I think another issue that was so sick for me to kind of read about when I was researching you and Lewis FC for this piece was that the issues around your thoughts around academies and your potential plans to one day sort of create an academy that changes the way the academy systems work. So for us ourselves, we've spoken for a long time about the um, the potential unhealthy nature of academies as they're currently set up. I think like, you know, we did some research and, you know, I think, you know, that it's like a 0.012% chance of, of young players that are in academies at the top level actually make it professional, which means obviously 99% <laughs> are thrust back into the world with no real understanding of potentially, you know, uh, like, you know, real employment, other career prospects, how to be, I suppose, you know, effective, happy human beings outside of football. Um, you had some really interesting quotes around how the academy system as it is right now kind of quite unhealthily leads sort of people to like chase a dream essentially, but there's not the same sort of backup plan that exists, I guess, um, if that's the right way to frame it. But yeah, like what is your perspective on the academy system? And when you spoke about Lewis FC's plans around future academies, what will that look like in your eyes and how is it going to be different and fix the problems that do exist in academies right now? Yeah, so I think with with the boys' academies, they're you know they're everywhere, and um, often they're charging the kids, or it's frankly a money making exercise. That makes me sick. Like I, I'm just so angry at the idea that you're telling these kids that they can trial out for something, and if they pay this money, then one day they might make it into the first team. When it's just it's just rotten. It's just not it's not the case. And then they, you chew up these kids and you spit them back out with a BTEC in sport and tourism or something like that um and and that's it that's it that's done those those kids have nothing left to go to that's that's kind of like the boy system the girl system I think is um it, first of all it's really really narrow the academy structure is limited to just the WSL teams so that's like 12 teams and a couple more you know and so if you're a really talented girl growing up on the Isle of Wight like I was um I, I couldn't I couldn't get anywhere like there's you know there's 12 places in the country maybe four or five of them are in London it's not particularly democratic right um so th I think there's just like lots and lots of challenges <coughs> and sometimes we've actually been encouraged to kind of see it as a money-making exercise so schools for example will get you know several thousand pounds per student that goes there from the government because that's how it works and then the idea is that us as a football club should make a deal with that school where we get 50 percent of the money they get from the government because we've helped attract that child to that school there's stuff in here that just doesn't sit right with me um and i think also we're, we're narrowing people's options by that i don't want to be in charge of a situation whereby I'm encouraging 20 girls to go to one school establishment to follow one set of um, BTEC qualifications or maybe A-levels. Like 20 girls are 20 completely different human beings with completely different academic skills and interests. And I just feel like we're narrowing girls too much. And we, you know, and this is moving away from the boys. We, we're narrowing their opportunities and their options. And what we're trying to do at Lewis is if we can, and this might be a dream, right? It might be a dream because we might not be able to get a license to play in this academy system, which is kind of so elite and up there. But what we want to do is create it so that there are incentives for, for girls and boys to do well at school and those incentives are football based. So if you do if you do well at school, and that could be vocational, it doesn't have to be you know really academic, then you get to be part of the Lewis FC uh, Academy. But also, if you're doing well at, on the pitch, you get access to these great opportunities at schools. So that might be partnering with um, like fee paying private schools that have a strong academic uh, 
track record in asking them to offer scholarships to really talented female footballers that might not otherwise be able to get there or, or, or the boys as well. Um, and then we're linking up with the universities to, to work with them so that the universities might um, offer something like a guaranteed interview to university if you're part of the Lewis FC pathway. So you might never have ever considered going to university because maybe you're from a background where that just never happened. And then suddenly you're in the Lewis FC footballing structure and you know you've got a guaranteed interview if you if you carry on and if you work hard. And, and I think that's just about trying to open some doors there and not try to create uh, monolithic footballers that all look the same and kind of come out in one form and then they're chewed up, spat out, and then we start again. And the last, the key for this as well, the other thing that I really want to embed into this um, is to find a kind of partner, like a commercial partner or a business that that backs this understanding of education and football together with a kind of dual career pathway. And so this would be a company that is willing to offer, for example, work experience to 16 year olds, and then maybe internships to the 18 or 19 year olds, and maybe even graduate placements to the to the kids that go through the pathway through university. So I don't know, maybe it's a bit complicated to explain this way, but it's basically just trying to find opportunities on the pitch and off the pitch so that those kids that go through the structure come out as more rounded human beings. They're not, they're not just a footballer um, and they've got some leadership skills and, and, you know, just, I don't know, creating something which is genuinely good, whether they make it in football or not. So at the end of it, they walk away and they are a more rounded human being, even if they don't make the first team. I don't think it's like, I don't think it should be radical, but it seems like this is radical somehow. Yeah, it's it's such an interesting question. And it kind of makes me think back to when I was in sixth form and having to look at different options and you've hit the nail on the head. It's you're looking at, okay, I want to potentially sign for this team, but in terms of me being well-rounded, I'm only restricted to two options, both of which I don't want to do. And I don't feel can actually give me any additional access going forward. So I could potentially do this for two years. Then after the two years, if I'm not where I want to be, I then look at my situation and go, okay, was it worthwhile? In order to make my situation work, it was kind of, okay, be in sixth form, do my A-levels as it were, but have to find a workaround situation to make football work, which was, again, me doing almost so much to kind of make this situation that should have been pretty simple work. And I know that's been a story for many, many, many young footballers, or they get to a point where they have to decide between the two because they go, okay, well, I can't necessarily get education and skills I want through this. So I'm just going to forget about football. So it is great to see that the club is trying to create solutions that enable young people to be young, but young people to have access to, to everything. So it's not, oh, you have to go 70% here, 30% here. You can do 50-50 or you can do what works for you, but you have the option to actually push forward with it. Yeah, I hope we can pull it off. I mean, we're in the planning phases at the moment and it just feels like uh, a bit of a no-brainer. We want to treat people, we want to treat these young people, uh, of course they're footballers, but they are people first. And again, that sounds like a bit of a cliche, but it's, I just see so much pressure on the boys and girls that we see going through. Pressure that's not related even to football, it's just social pressure, right? Mm -hmm. And anything we can do to alleviate that and help them reach their full potential on and off the pitch, I just think we, we kind of, as a football club, we kind of owe that to them. No, for real, I, 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 I fully respect it. Speaking of respect, International Women's Day is, it's a day that's supposed to celebrate loads of achievements, right, of women, whether it's social, economical, cultural, or political. When you look at football, do you think more needs to be done in terms of celebrating women within positions? Oh, I don't. I, um, I don't really have a have a have a view. But then maybe I maybe it, maybe I don't mind so much. I mean, I think there's some really incredible stories out there about pioneers in women's football that maybe people don't know about. That even I'm learning about as someone that's like embedded in the game. There's this brilliant story of a of a Scottish uh, female footballer called Rose Riley. 
when I heard her story last year, I was like, are you kidding me? This is like the best story ever. She was basically effectively banned from playing football in Scotland. So she picked up and like moved to France and ended up like in the, in the San Siro in Italy as well, playing in a huge stadium in front of like thousands, thousands of people. She was like this huge pioneer. And I just never heard of her. And I just, you know, it was just, I think there's so many really fascinating stories out there that um, probably need to be shared. I, you know, I think, I think International Women's Day, I'm always a little bit mixed about it. Um, I think it's a nice time to like take stock and think about how far we've come. Um, but I think that effectively what we want is just normalization of women on our TV screens and talking about football and not being tested. I mean, the worst thing that people can do is like test the, the, the one woman that's around in the pub watching the football, whether she actually knows the offside rule or you know there's there's so many stories about people being told oh can you like name the lineup for the Liverpool versus Spurs in 1997 oh well you're not a proper fan then are you it's like what I don't know let's just normalize it let's kind of move on from this I'm kind of kind of bored of it no I 100% agree and but the story you told about so many key stories not being out there for me it's something I've come to see more and more I mean I'm still shocked by the amount of people that don't know that the women's game was banned, mm. was actually banned. And when you put that into perspective, if you tell that to anyone, it's like that, that, that's hard to fathom, but it's knowledge that's not out there. And I feel like it is stuff that needs to be pushed. People need to be educated and people need to know that it is important. And I feel like what, what you mentioned is the reality football is football and it should be treated like that in terms of male, female, whatever it, it's football, it's football. It's the game we love and therefore it should just be treated across like that but one thing that's great about you is you mentioned um Isle of Wight and being a budding footballer you I know you've played football you've done so much around the game as well which is not even just with Lewis I know that in terms of if your role with Seagar you you were heavily involved who are your some of your um inspirations within a game oh man um someone who I look up to a lot is um Billie Jean King over in the US, so huge pioneer. Sorry, not even in football, there you go. Um, but, you know, obviously brought in equal pay in tennis um, and was doing so from really challenging backgrounds. Like she herself is a huge champion in the LGBT community as well, so had to break a lot of barriers. Uh, someone who's a little bit less known, but who is just an incredible leader, mentor, is someone called Moya Dodd. She was the first woman to be elected onto the FIFA uh, executive committee so again against all the odds um, and then she was probably too honest and genuine in some of the reforms that she wanted to bring so has kind of been pushed out of the picture um, she's you know just a, a, a real inspiration um, and and now a, a, like a mentor to me um, and then I guess if you fast forward I think you have to uh, recognize people like Megan Rapinoe who've taken a stand uh, long before it was kind of that visible I think she's been she's been like a, a strong champion for a very long time as well as playing at the top of the game um, so yeah there's some there's some brilliant role models out there um, find out about their stories if, if you don't know them already 100% now of course this is the future of football podcast so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the crystal ball and I'm going to ask you what does the future of football look like for Lewis FC? Oh, um, okay. So, so the dream is that in the, in in say ten years time, we've got a really beautiful new stadium, which is a stadium that no one's ever seen before in the world because it will be unique and community oriented and won't be shut up for six days a week. It will be open throughout the day, every day for people to use. Um, and, you know, the women will be flying high, probably playing Champions League football, I would reckon. And the men will be in the, the National League um, pushing up. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's, I don't think it will take us 10 years to get there. Um, but it's it's exciting to think to think forward. I think we're, we're, we're on the way. So it's, uh, um, I think just in general, if I was, if my crystal ball was like looking out in general across the country so not even about Lewis my crystal ball would have um like a, a girl playing football in the park 
and she's really rubbish and no one bats an eyelid no one points a finger no one kind of tells her that she doesn't belong because when you walk along there's loads of boys that play in the park that are pretty rubbish and no one ever like bats an eyelid about them so I really want to normalize girls playing sport and playing football to the extent that no one even cares anymore no one's talking about it we don't have to have champions and leaders and inspirational women because it's just so normal that it's boring it's amazing amazing maggie thank you so much for sharing your time your stories your positivity your energy your passion with us for the last hour that's flown by that was nice long conversation it was good um look i think one thing we all agree is that if more football clubs acted with the same sort of mindset and attitude that lewis fc do I think the game would be in an even better place and yeah, congratulations and respect for all the work you and the club are doing and continues to do uh, as the game moves forward. So uh, yeah, pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure. All good. That was the future of football. It's been Corey and Mayawa. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>